Imagine you're in a hospital and you're in dire need of an organ. Your doctor comes up to you in their scrubs and they say, we have an organ for you, but there's only one small problem. The donor is at a slight risk of having a bloodborne disease like HIV. They tested negative, but because they're in this high-risk group, we don't usually recommend these people as organ donors. But if you consent to it, you can have the organ. What would you say? I think if I knew that I was going to die without this organ, I would definitely take the opportunity and say yes. I mean, people are on the list for years sometimes, so... I think I'd probably ask the doctor, yeah, what risk are we talking here? Is it 1%, 0.1%, 10%? But unfortunately, the doctor previously wouldn't have had access to that statistic because no one had really done that research. But... Interestingly, there's a researcher at the University of Sydney who's just uh, published a paper in the MJA today about this particular topic. So Dr Karen Waller is a medical doctor and PhD candidate at the University of Sydney School of Public Health. And we're just about to catch up with her to hear about what she's found. Hello. Oh, hi, Karen. How are you doing? Hey, good. Felicity. Hey, nice to meet you again. Meet you again? Yes. Yes. Hey, nice Nice to meet you. This is the Medical Republic. I'm Francine Crimmins. And I'm Felicity Nelson. Later in this episode, we're speaking to TMR reporter Penny Durham. Penny's just got back from Madrid, where she attended one of the biggest summits for respiratory medicine in the world. Um, And she's got some really interesting insights to share on vaping. Yeah, so that's up a bit later. But first, uh, let's get into our first topic of today, which is looking at high-risk people, or at least what we now consider high-risk people for organ donation, and how scales actually might be tipping and these people may be the future of boosting up the Australian Organ Donation Registry. Uh, Welcome to the show, Dr Waller. Thanks very much for having me along. So do you want to just give us a summary of of your paper? Sure. So the study that we've done looks at some organ donors who've previously been rejected by for organ donation because of concerns that they might pass on an infection to a recipient. In my study, we try to calculate what sort of risks the donors who have increased risk behaviours that put them at risk for bloodborne viruses like hepatitis B and C and HIV, what kind of risks they actually have if they test negative for all those infections, and put that in an Australian context, which we've never had data in Australia for this before. Yeah, so what's the reason that uh, these people who are HIV negative or negative for any other bloodborne disease what's the reason that they currently can't donate organs is it because they're at high risk of getting these diseases and therefore you're not sure no matter when you test them you can't be sure that they haven't just contracted it is that so that's the the concern um, that there's a standardized list of risk behaviors uh, that's accepted by transplantation societies around the world and these are people who are more likely to pick up bloodborne viruses than people who don't have those behaviors There's a delay between when you get exposed to a virus and when that virus becomes detectable with our tests, which means that there's a window period where we can't pick up the virus. And that means that for every organ donor, there is a tiny risk of a window period infection. So by doing that questionnaire, we try and tease out people who we think are at higher risk of having recently acquired an infection. So the groups who are defined by the um, guidelines uh, as being at increased risk for organ transplantation purposes um, include people who inject drugs, men who have sex with men, uh, people who've been recently incarcerated, um, sex workers and 
people who have a sexual partner who belongs to one of those categories. Uh, essentially what we found is that the absolute risk of those viruses are low, even if you have risk behaviours, as long as you test negative for those infections. Uh, and this is particularly true, uh, particularly timely when we've got new hepatitis C curative therapies, which has been something that's held us back before. So uh, this means we might be able to increase the number of organ donors by accepting organ, uh, organs that we previously thought were too risky. And what would that increase in number look like? We don't have any, there's no hard data for Australia about this. We've had a bit of a look at a cohort of referrals to New South Wales. It's over the period 2010 to 2015. But we found that there was about five organ donors per year who were rejected um, because of their increased risk behaviours and no other reason that could potentially be used if they test negative. That sounds like a small number, but each of those organ donors can go on to donate to up to six recipients. And over that time period, those five donors would have been about an extra 5% of the donor pool. So uh, that's just New South Wales data. Um, so we'd be projecting to uh, speculate on what it could be like in, uh, over all of Australia. Um, so it occurs to me that one of the potential benefits of uh, including this group of people as potential organ donors is that they might happen to be younger or healthier in other respects compared to other potential organ donors. And what I mean by that is a lot of people live, you know, into their 80s or the 70s. And by that point, when they pass away, they might have a lot of, you know, other chronic illnesses and getting an organ from one of those donors. Um, you know, if you weigh it up, it might actually be better to take on the risk that you could get an infectious disease rather than, you know, taking an, an organ from someone who has all of these other chronic health issues. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so I think um, some unpublished work we've done in Australia, but also published work from overseas, does suggest that donors who have risk behaviours for bloodborne viruses tend to be younger and healthier than the rest of the organ donor pool. Um, I think how that weighs out in terms of impact on recipients is difficult to tease out. Um, I think it's probably more important to focus on the fact that the absolute risks we're talking about from people who test negative who belong to those groups are really, really low. There was So this is a big problem in America. They have um, The opioid epidemic in America is pretty profound um, and in their populations um, of organ donors, people who have increased risk behaviours are now 25% of the organ donor pool, which is a lot higher than it would be in Australia. And They've done studies uh, using their waiting list system where they compared people who accepted donors who have this increased viral risk but test negative, as well as other recipients who chose to wait for a donor organ that didn't have the same risk. I think this was in kidneys specifically, hence they're able to wait on dialysis. Um, and they found there was actually a survival benefit for those people who took the kidneys that were at an increased risk of transmitting a bloodborne virus but tested negative. It may be different uh, in Australia. We have a different waiting list system and different healthcare systems, but I think uh, it may just be that the shorter waiting time itself in America was the reason that people who took these organs actually benefited in a really measurable way. And another thing that we've seen more recently is that a lot of these bloodborne uh, diseases are so manageable now. Is there any research on that, a post-donation, and how many people actually end up getting infected? And so there's been studies looking at um, hepatitis C and in international settings people have been doing hepatitis C positive to negative transplants now. 
with really? good outcomes. Um, it's still usually in a trial sort of setting, um, but the hepatitis C can then be cu deliberately cured after um, transplantation. This can be done in Australia, usually amongst liver transplant recipients who are very unwell. Um, that, that already happens underway. We know hepatitis B can be effectively suppressed after transplantation. It's just another pill to the regime a day. For all of these infections, the main thing is that we know about them early and get people onto the right therapy. If someone has an unexpected transmission, that's when bad events can occur, which wouldn't be expected in the settings of where we uh, are aware of people's risk behaviours and have tested them prior to transplantation. So when an organ donation recipient gets the organ and they happen to get, say, HIV or hepatitis C, I understand that during that transplantation period they're on a lot of immunosuppressant drugs. Does that impact the uh, patient if they happen to also get that infectious disease at that critical time? Um, so, I mean, first of all, to caveat, transmission of infectious diseases through organ transplantation happens incredibly rarely because clinicians are very risk averse. Um, you know, this is the kind of stuff that when it happens, it gets written up into a medical journal because we, we don't want it to happen. Apart from, of course, and even, even when we do deliver it hepatitis C positive to negative, that's been a bit of a stir with um, curing. In the deliberate setting of giving um, hepatitis C uh, infected patients organs to people who don't have hepatitis C, outcomes have been good. Um, with the deliberate cure of hepatitis C post. Um, if there has been an unexpected transmission, outcomes can be quite poor, um, which is why we try to avoid unexpected transmissions of infections. Um, or if we were to use donors who have increased risk, uh, part of that where that's been implemented internationally has involved routine testing of recipients post-transplant to make sure that if there is any transmission that is picked up on. And what about um, patients who are HIV positive and are giving organs to other HIV positive patients or the same with other infections? Is that something that happens in Australia? I'm not aware of it happening in Australia. I'm not aware that it's would whether it's specifically precluded or not. Um, and I think part of the shift that we're advocating for in my research is um, to consider risk on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, but there were previously uh, enough numbers to run a hepatitis C positive waiting list um, for kidney transplant recipients to accept a, a kidney from a donor who was hepatitis C positive, but even that never had very large number of patients on it, and hepatitis C is a lot more prevalent than HIV. Sure. So the, the scale of that issue is not huge. Cool. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show uh, and sharing a little bit of your research. No worries. I hope that was informative. Next up, we're bringing Penny on the show to talk about some of the latest on vaping from one of the biggest respiratory conferences in the world. Before that, though, we're going to take a little break with some sponsored content. For this segment, the Medical Republic interviewed Dr. Mariam Siddiqui, the CEO of Meta Optima, on the topic of how drones could change dermatology. Thanks, Dr. Siddiqui. Welcome back to the Medical Republic. We've heard that you've been developing some tech where a drone with a smartphone may actually be able to do a full body scan for moles. It sounds very, very futuristic. Could you maybe explain it to us? Um, yes, the drone um, project is my favorite project uh, in our R&D department. It's actually, um, imagine a dermatology office, fully intelligent, automated. So what do you see? documentation, imaging, diagnosis, and providing care to our patients. Uh, it was started from a meeting I had in one of the major cancer centers in New York. Um, the doctor there was asking me, Mariam, I spent 45 minutes, 
for imaging and just documentation for my high-risk patients. Do you guys have anything that could help with this? Um, I was working on robotics at the time and also the AI system that we have, the platform that we have, their engine. We were looking at different imaging tools and how we can automate this. Robots were expensive, um, so $200,000, I was like, yes, it can be automated, but that's gonna be expensive. I need something that can be very affordable <laughs> and packed small because we have a small office in our clinics and also scalable so we can offer it to many thousand doctors and patients, not just few centers. Uh, here and there. So the idea was really born um, looking at the imaging workflow in the clinic and the only thing we could find was a drone. That could be intelligence, intelligent just because we can put the derm engine brain inside the drone in a chip that actually is running the drone and it can take photos, it can zoom in, it can get closer <laughs> it can document the whole exam in three minutes, right? And it's automated. So you don't need to hire a full-time photographer or melanographer, we call in melanoma centers, to take photos. Um, and the beauty of the system is that we eliminate or minimize the human error in documentation. Because if I come to your clinic this, um, you know, today, you take my photos, next time I come, you probably have different lighting, you have probably different room, you have different even... Um, nurse or someone who's going to take my photos, they won't be the same, lighting won't be the same, distance won't be the same, orientation won't be the same, so which means the data won't be really um, repeatable um, to compare and be accurate. Doctors or patients are not flying the drone, by the way. <laughs> it's sitting on their desk, uh, but actually they can just click on their dimension account, scan the patient, and the patient has a stand. Um, the drone is scanning the patient, going around the patient, documenting um, the full body images, building the patient's 3D body map, mapping everything to this 3D body map, and the next time the patient comes, the drone has that exam and is gonna repeat the exact same imaging process. So one of the doctors was asking me, what if it hits the wall, it hits the window? I was like, no, <laughs> the drone that can find cancer for you will be intelligent not to hit the wall and you know not to hit the patient. Uh, but actually we have supervisory systems, which is of course needed for patient safety, for indoor regulations. So we're also welcoming our political journalist, Penny Durham, back. Uh, she's been overseas in Spain, uh, not all sunning herself, though, and <laughs> drinking sangria. She's been very busy at one of the biggest respiratory conferences. Is that right? That's right. Yes. Uh, no, there was no, no sangria for me particularly. It was a huge conference, 22,000 delegates, 550 sessions, 4,000 bits of new work presented. It was massive. So I imagine they had quite a bit of discussion about vaping, which has become this massive Yeah, thing. it is. A, it's a very hot topic at the moment. There were a few sessions on that. Um, obviously, it's of huge interest at the moment because of this terrible outbreak of lung disease in the US, um, which I just read is up over 1,100 cases and 23 deaths, including one teenager as as we're recording. I didn't know it was that bad, really. Mm. And I think it's related to vaping. Uh, well, everybody who counts as a case, has vaped. Really? Yes. And do we know anything about how frequently they vape mm. or anything like that? 
everyone's really different. It's sort of a lot of heterogeneity in it, and it's which is why the detective work by the epidemiologists at the moment is so difficult because everybody's smoked different kinds of products. Um, most of them uh, have smoked THC products. So uh, the CDC is warning everybody to stop vaping, especially the THC, um, until they work out what is responsible for it. Um, the the actual disease itself, they thought for a while that it was um, lipoid pneumonia, which is what you get when you aspirate fats. But um, recently a, a group of Mayo Clinic doctors uh, did some histopathology on lung biopsies from some of these patients and found that it's presenting more like a chemical burn, which is nasty. Um, so there's a lot of panic, a lot of um, various uh, state and federal attempts to ban flavoured e-cigarettes and legal challenges to those bans are being mounted. And of course, the, the people who think that vaping is actually a really good way to help people stop smoking have pointed out the absurdity of banning vaping flavours while you're living cigarettes on the shelf when they are killing almost half a million people in the US alone every year. And uh, it is also important to recognise that this is something new, like vaping has been widespread for about a decade and there have only been like a few sporadic cases of pneumonia linked to vaping in all that time. So there must be some new contaminant and they, but they can't work out yet what it is. Was it, um, a simi- was it a similar kind of product that they were taking? Not really. Like it, it, the, because it's basically a black market product, it's not properly regulated in the US. You can buy it from wherever. You can buy it from a street corner. You can buy it online. You can mix your own solutions. So you get these like bathtub concoctions, which are just like bathtub gin in how reliable they are um, and how potent they are. And obviously you don't know what kind of contaminants might be in there. Um, and the, this sort of seems to be really a regulation problem in the US because you just don't know what you're getting. And when you were at the Congress in Madrid, what was the word on the vaping situation? Well, the, the official word literally was one word, don't. The um, former president of the ERS, <laughs> uh, Jorgen Vespo, um, you know, you, you get a lot of really super complicated, busy slides in, at these things. He put up a slide with one massive word on the slide, don't. And he said that was the entire ERS position statement in a nutshell. He thinks... Well, the entire ERS seems to think that the harm reduction case is built on flawed arguments, that e-cigarettes are in themselves harmful, so how can they be reducing harm? And um, the room, which was packed, um, everybody was there, it was, the room was generally very supportive of this, and um, there is a new, the society has also passed a new bylaw which um, treats funding from e-cigarette makers as equivalent to funding from big tobacco, and that automatically excludes you from membership of the ERS. So they're pretty hardline and um, on vaping, and only one person in that whole room got up to express a more qualified view of vaping, uh, Dr. Nick Hopkinson from the UK outfit Action on Smoking and Health, or ASH. Um, England is pretty different from Europe on this point because you know, Public Health England thinks that there is actually a role for, for e-cigarettes in smoking cessation and says that they're about 95% safer than cigarettes. There is a bit of controversy around that number, but they think it could be, you know, even more, um, you know, 97%, 98%, but that's sort of the number that you hear. Um, And Dr. Hopkinson pointed out that it was a little bit rich for Europe to be lecturing England, um, which has a much lower smoking rate, and it tightly regulates e-cigarettes so that it hasn't seen the same kind of health disaster as you have in the US, nor has it seen the same take-up of vaping among adolescents. And uh, I thought he was pretty courageous to get up and put his uh, head in the lion's mouth. Um, 
And so I, I grabbed him after the session for a little interview and here's a little bit of our conversation. Yeah, I think I think that um, one of the one of the problems with these cigarettes is that because they're new and interesting and uh, people have concerns about them and they worry about the links to the tobacco industry that that you end up with a, a very um, almost aggressive form of argument and people take positions and they and they are interested in the things that support their position and they dismiss the other side um, the, the main problem is that smoking is on course to kill a billion people in the 21st century we, we, we need to stop that and we know how to we know what works so you have to put up prices you have to uh, ban advertising you have to keep the tobacco industry out of policy you have to help people help to quit um, you know warn people about about the risks it's possible to get you know rates down so in the UK our adult smoking rates down to about 15% I think in Australia it's 12% now so that, that 12% of that 15% hides uh, you know a, a substantial group of adults who uh, who've been smoking for a long time and who are at very high risk of smoking related diseases now uh, you know, in an ideal world, or even in a sensible world, those people would be would 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 have the benefit of the kind of the societal interventions I talked about already, which help people to to, to, to quit. So, for, for people who smoke, switching to an e-cigarette is going to be safer as long as long as they switch completely, because it contain it doesn't contain many of the toxic chemicals that are in a tobacco smoke, and the ones that are there are there at just much lower levels. So, no one's really maintained that they're harmless, but they are much less risky. So, so Dr. Hopkinson you know, basically told the society, um, you really need to make some strong statements about smoking too, because you can smoke in all your cafes and you have higher rates than England. And I think England does have something to say to Europe on the question of vaping. Um, and uh, he tried to, he got sort of closed down pretty swiftly by the panel and um, they didn't let him have any more bites of the cherry. So what's the situation in Australia then? Yeah, the contra- it's controversial here whether e-cigarettes should be considered a therapeutic good because they're having a therapeutic claim made for them, which is that they can help you get off tobacco, um, or whether instead it would be better to regulate it as a consumer good. That way it could just easily sit alongside the cigarettes um, and compete with them better. And there are passionate advocates on both sides. It's been through a parliamentary inquiry and uh, the committee came down in favour of the status quo, although there were dissenting views on the committee. Uh, the, the Liberal MP Andrew Lamming said his entire dissenting report said life is short and shorter for smokers, just legalise vaping. So it's pretty succinct, although not quite as succinct as the old don't from the ERS. Um, and it was, it's now going through an independent academic inquiry. Um, one thing I'm pretty sure isn't helping is that uh, big tobacco companies, which are obviously also getting into the e-cigarette market, um, they're actively lobbying members of our government to um, make e-cigarettes a consumer goods so that we can bring down our smoking rate even further. And the industry is so incredibly two-faced on this. In the West, they're claiming they want people to stop smoking um, and vape instead, whereas in Africa and in Asia, they're on a huge, massive push to get everybody smoking. Um, so I suspect that their advocacy might actually be the kiss of death for that side of the debate, um, if only because no one's going to want to do them any favours at all. I guess that's like when you look at Philip Morris, how their you know ten-year plan is supposedly a smoke-free future. Uh, yeah. Um, which you know is I don't know how they're planning to make any money if not. Well, through. no, it's, it's nonsense, and it would be corporate suicide for any of these um, companies to 
pull out of tobacco manufacturing, so none of them is going to go first. Uh, they're shoring up their markets in the West by promoting vaping, but they're definitely, like all over Asia and Africa, they're building new um, tobacco manufacturing, you know, cigarette-making factories, and the walls and the streets are just plastered with cigarette advertising. So you really can't believe a word that they say. And Penny, you're at a respiratory conference and like any medical conference, you like to think that people maybe practice what they preach, but you had a pretty interesting story from Madrid. Yeah, it was, it was pretty funny. I was walking along you know, this massive um, conference venue, looking at all the non-smoking signs and thinking, this is a respiratory conference. How necessary is that really? And just as I was having that thought, I walked through a cloud of smoke and I thought that's strange. And I backtracked a few steps and saw a man hiding behind a bush having a bag, <laughs> having a diary. So, you know, um, even, even the experts sometimes find it difficult to um, practice what they preach. Okay, that's it for this week's podcast. Thanks so much for joining us again. Um, so you can subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or whatever podcatcher you prefer. We'll see you next time.